Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Professor Peter Bruce from the University of St Andrews talks about how developing technologies will help us to meet the challenges of finding a renewable energy source. Good evening. I'm, I'm Glynis Breakwell. I'm the Vice-Chancellor of the University, for those of you who don't know me. And it's my great pleasure to introduce our speaker this evening. There's no doubt that research can change the way in which we think, act and engage with the world around us. At the University of Bath, we believe that research in universities should have an impact beyond academia and should aim to make a difference, to benefit our wider society, economy, culture and people, nationally and internationally. We therefore not only seek to promote scientific excellence, but also to use research to address important topics in the world today. The Research in the World series was established three years ago to provide an opportunity for the university community, invited guests and members of the public to hear from inspiring people who are engaged with topics that resonate with key areas of our research and scholarship here at the University of Bath. Our distinguished speaker tonight is Professor Peter Bruce, Ward Law Professor of Chemistry at the University of St Andrews, where he leads a large research group and two major consortia tackling fundamental challenges in energy research. His work has been recognised by many national and international awards and fellowships, including the Royal Society Pickering Research Fellowship and the Royal Society of Chemistry Tilden Lectureship. He was elected to the Royal Society of Edinburgh, that's the Scottish Academy of Sciences, for those of you who don't realise, in 1994, and to the Royal Society, which is the UK Academy of Sciences, in 2007. His research focuses on the properties of novel materials for generation of energy conservation and storage devices. These developing technologies are crucial in enabling us to meet the challenges of finding renewable energy sources. His lecture this evening will explore how the combination of new scientific knowledge and new materials is enabling technological transformation. I'm very much looking forward to this. I'm sure you are too. Therefore, I will not delay you any longer. I invite Professor Peter Bruce to present his lecture, Energy Storage, The Missing Link. Peter. Well, Vice-Chancellor, thank you very much for that very kind introduction, and I'd like to thank you and and, uh, Jane Miller and others involved here in in, uh, asking me to come and talk to you tonight. It's a great great pleasure. I've I've had a a very fruitful collaboration with one of your most excellent uh, academic staff, Saiful Islam in chemistry, for the last few years, and so I do know Bath a little bit, but it's nice to be able to come here and and cement that interaction a little further with this... uh, with this lecture uh, tonight. So the title of my talk is uh, Energy Storage, as the Vice-Chancellor mentioned, the missing 
the missing link. Um, I should say this is a picture of the, uh, of the old course at St. Andrews. Uh, for those of you who are golfers will recognize this, uh, looking to the uh, 18th green here. So this is the Royal and Ancient Clubhouse, and this is Hamilton Hall, or it was. It used to belong to the university. Uh, we wisely sold it to a property developer. You can see why. And the views would be uh, uh, one which would be attractive to many. And uh, for that uh, relatively large sum of money and building a new hall of residence, uh, uh, the university no longer owns Hamilton Hall. Out here on the left-hand side, out of shot is the sea, and out of here on the right-hand side, also out of shot, is the chemistry department. Chemistry department's a rather ugly 1960s building, so I thought I would show you a more attractive scene. Uh, although I am a chemist and I work in the less attractive part of St. Andrews on the right-hand side of the shot here. So why energy storage and why the missing link? Well, it turns out that energy storage has a crucial role to play in tackling what I think is the greatest challenge to humanity in the 21st century, and that is global warming. It's, it's a little bit of a Cinderella topic, or it was. It, it, there was a lot of attention given to uh, me- methods of renewable electricity generation, wind and wave, and of course to the social changes that are going to be necessary in consumers uh, to tackle or to deal with problems of climate change. But energy storage has now come to the fore in the last few years because it's understood that it's critical to addressing this challenge. And it is, in a sense, the missing link because it bridges those renewable energy technologies with the consumer demands. You will not get a stable electricity grid system with large numbers of renewables connected to it without storage. You won't be able to supply the desires of the customer with renewable energy without energy storage. And we'll look at this a little bit uh, during the talk. So what I want to do in, the, in, in, in this presentation is, first of all, I'm going to say a few things about science in the 20th century and then science in the 21st century. And then we'll look at the issues of climate change. Now, you might say, well, that's been talked about before. But I, I've detected a, a, something of a waning in, in, the, in the presence of this in people's minds. I guess, inevitably, when... Human beings are programmed to worry about the short term, and we're all worried about the financial crisis and and the euro, etc. And that sort of pushes some of these things off the agenda. But I would say that even if you're Greek, uh, the challenges of climate change, the threats of climate change, are probably greater uh, than the economic crisis. So I think it's good to remind ourselves of that. Um, And then we'll look at energy storage and why that's vital in addressing these challenges. And I'll show you, or try to show you, the role that science has to play. Now, obviously, it's a vast topic, so I've chosen one that I can talk with a little bit of authority about, and that is the rechargeable lithium battery and how it will play out in energy storage. So that's what we're going to do uh, in the course of the the presentation. So let's start with some comments on science. So science in the 20th century, it made great strides in the fundamentals of the subject. If you think about how much we now understand about the nature of matter. At the beginning of the 20th century, we, we, we knew very little about what was inside the atom. At the end of that century, we had a huge knowledge of subatomic physics. And if you think of our understanding of the universe, uh, the origin of the universe, the Big Bang theory, other uh, concepts in cosmology, this developed through that century too. And as I mentioned, I'm a chemist And if we think about the nature of the chemical bond and our understanding of that, the very thing that holds atoms together that sort of pervades everything that's going on in your bodies right now, um, that understanding was transformed massively during the 20th century. 
and we also came to understand far more about the molecular origin of being. In other words, Crick and Watson's uh, structure of DNA in the 1950s really sort of started off, I guess, the molecular biology revolution, our understanding of genetics, etc. Um, and that, of course, goes on today. And you can think of lots of other examples of these sort of transformational aspects of, of understanding of the fundamentals of science in the 20th century. And this is going to continue throughout the 21st century, already is. But I think we're seeing a change in emphasis towards science tackling societal challenges. Now, science always has, of course, tackled societal challenges, but we are seeing a greater emphasis on this. How do we feed an increasing population? How do we supply that population with clean drinking water? How do we tackle diseases? And, of course, already our molecular biology colleagues are are, are heavily involved in, in using those, the fundamental knowledge that they're developing to, to address these issues. And then last, but by no means least, we have global warming and energy supply. And I put them together because, of course, there's a tension here. Because as economies such as India and China develop, they quite understandably are increasing significantly their demand for energy, their use of energy. And that's at a time when we're trying to reduce carbon emissions. So these two things are, uh, in many senses, Intention. But the reason I wanted to put this slide up is to point out that the intellectual challenges in dealing with these are no less than the intellectual challenges on the left-hand side here. We still need science. We need transformational science. We need new concepts, new ideas. This is a real intellectual challenge, as much as these fundamental issues are in tackling these problems here. We need paradigm shifts in our understanding especially if we're going to tackle these problems in the long term. And I would contend that the place that's going to happen is within the university sector. These are long-term challenges, they're intellectual challenges, and this is the sort of place that that is going to happen. It's not going to happen in industry because the, 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 the timescales are, are really too long. So this is very much part of what we have to do. Okay, so let's, let's uh, look at um, this issue. I've said that science has a key role in tackling climate change. It's not just, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, it's not just a technological challenge. So why is that? What, what's the role of science? Well, we of course should do what we can with the technologies that we currently have available to try and mitigate carbon emissions. So we should use uh, wind power. We should expand our use of of wind power. We should use solar energy with the technologies we have. We should use wave power. We should use tidal power. But I don't think these alone, using the technologies we have today, will really address the challenges in the longer term. Technology, after all, is the appliance of known science. And we need to tackle these problems. We need a transformation in our scientific uh, understanding. When something like climate change comes along in a relatively short timescale compared with the development of intellectual thought and ideas, we just don't have the knowledge base on which to build radical new technologies that we need. We have to acquire that knowledge, we have to acquire that understanding, and that is the fundamental core challenge for the science here. So let's look at this issue of energy demand and, and global warming, because there are two aspects, as I mentioned, to that. Now, don't worry if you can't read the scale on this graph on the left. 
it doesn't matter. It's the trend that matters. Actually, the scale is in billions of barrels of oil equivalents. This is showing you the energy demand worldwide, starting at, I think, about 1920 and projecting up to beyond 2040. And you see that that energy demand is continuously increasing. Now, the green curve here corresponds to the oil supply. I think the pink one corresponds to natural gas and the blue one, coal. So what you see from these natural (coughs) sources of energy is that they're going to peak and then there's going to be a drop-off. So as we go out into 2040 and beyond, there's going to be an increasing gap between a demand, which is rising, and a falling supply from conventional uh, sources. And that gap is going to have to be filled by renewable energy and or uh, nuclear. So energy demand is growing. Oil reserves are diminishing. The sources of oil and gas are not going to become any politically more stable than they have been over the last few decades. They may not be in the Middle East. They're going to be in Russia and other places, but this is not going to help us in terms of energy security. The prices are going to continue to be very volatile, although overall they're probably going to rise. So all these problems are still going to face us on the energy supply side. Then the other side of the equation is the global warming uh, aspect. So what you see here is a plot of the average global temperature versus time. This is some, some, these are some data from John Holdren at Harvard. We start out in the 1600s and we progress up to projections at 2100. And what you note here is that really the global temperature didn't change very much up to 1900. Things stayed pretty stable. Then from 1900 throughout the 20th century, you see a rise in temperature of around 0.8 degrees. And of course, this is due to the Industrial Revolution, really just gathering pace. And then beyond there, you see various projections, which is why there's a band here, because projections are always, always have uncertainty. Um, so there's a range of, of projected temperatures. The two-degree rise in temperature is the one that the EU have used to set their emission targets for 2050. And that's assumed to be a global rise in temperature that will not disrupt significantly um, our, gen- our lifestyles around the world. Beyond 2 degrees, 4 degrees or 6 degrees, the influence of those sort of temperature rises could really be catastrophic for um, the planet. Effects like these. We'll lose, to a greater and greater extent, the polar ice caps. Parts of southern Europe will become desert. So if you're planning your holidays to the south of Spain or, or or Italy, I would suggest you go soon, uh, because it may be that you're visiting something that's rather more like the Sahara in 20 years or 30 years' time. Um, the eastern seaboard of the States and areas around the Philippines here are likely to be significantly affected by rise in, in uh, sea levels and, and flooding. So this means major changes of population, major migration areas that are just clinging on to agriculture and subsistence will become too arid uh, for that to happen. So you'll have large population movements uh, from the sort of central band of the planet to the, to the, to the, to the extremes of the poles, etc. So major changes um, if we go to a four or six degree uh, rise in temperature. Now I can't say that global warming is, is definitely going to cause these problems. No one can say with certainty about the future. 
But I think we can say that there's lots of evidence that points in this direction and we're going to look pretty silly to our children and grandchildren if we don't do something about this. And most of what we should do is not really... It's not something that's bad anyway. I mean, if we move away from our use of natural resources such as oil and gas to renewables or nuclear, I think that's a good thing. We should be using these scarce resources, these diminishing resources, as feedstocks for our chemical industry rather than just as energy sources. So there is a good things to do anyway. So energy storage. What's the role of energy storage? Well, it turns out that it's more important today than it has ever been in, in history. Energy storage, especially the ability to store electrical energy in a compact and lightweight form, has been one of the main drivers that has transformed portable electronics over the last couple of decades. And I'm talking here about the rechargeable lithium battery, which is the, is the um, store of electricity that's used in most of these uh, devices in, in your iPod or iPad now or laptop. Uh, lithium-ion batteries are used because they have a high energy density. They store a lot of energy per unit mass and volume. And that's driven a lot of the, 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 the developments in portable electronics that we sort of take for granted. But you cast your mind back 20 years and think of the change in these, these technologies over 20 years. It's really been quite phenomenal. In the power tool sector, we're seeing lithium batteries moving in there. So you get power tools that last longer, between recharges that are lighter weight. If we look at the medical applications, that's another area where portable power is important. I'll see if this video is going to work for us. Um, some of the, let's see, more mature members of the audience might recognize this. This is an opening sequence from um, a 1970s American TV series called uh, The Bionic Man. <laughs> and the idea here was that he was... Um, uh, injured in some sort of horrific accident and they rebuilt him with ocular implants and uh, artificial limbs and actuators, etc. And as so often happens, uh, science fiction becomes science fact. And over the next few decades, we're going to see a far greater use of implantable medical devices, active implantable medical devices. You may have seen just in the last few weeks a, uh, a young man who got a, a, an artificial hand um, and it's that sort of technology. And these things need power. They need a lot of power. This is not like a heart pacemaker. You can't just put it into your body, come back 10 years later and operate and replace it. You need to recharge these sort of things every, every day. So you need lightweight, compact uh, sources of, of power. And that will be the technology of choice here is the rechargeable lithium battery. Probably mounted subcutaneously around here where there's some space you can get four D-sized cells, those are the chunky ones, into your body around here. Um, and that's the sort of concept that would drive some of these, these things, such as the artificial heart. Okay, the heart's just a pump. You could replace it uh, with, a, with, with a device like this, but you need power, you need portable power to make this happen. So that's an important area. It may not be the same high profile as climate change. It may not be the same numbers but it's important in the advances of uh, implantable devices in medicine. The one that ex exercises mainly, of course, is the problem of climate change and carbon emissions. So what you see here is a sort of pie chart dividing up the main sources of carbon emissions from, 
from the use of fossil fuels. Now, it's of roughly a third, a third, a third. I know it varies around the world, but just approximately, this is how it divides up. So a third of, of fossil fuels used to generate electricity, a third for transport, and a third for heating. And there's a lot of effort to move away from the direct use of fossil fuels in heating, such as gas for your gas boilers and your central heating system. But we're not actually going to sit and shiver. All that's going to mean is we'll actually heat our homes with electricity, which just transfers the carbon dioxide problem somewhere else uh, in the cycle. So it doesn't actually solve the problem. You have to reduce uh, the size of the pie rather than just move things around. So these are the two big challenges for reducing carbon emissions. For electricity generation, we have to move, as I've already touched on this, to renewable sources such as wind, wave, or solar, or to nuclear, or probably to a mix of all of these, to reduce carbon emissions. But there's a big problem. The sun doesn't shine at night. The wind doesn't follow the consumer demand. When you go and boil the kettle or make the dinner, it doesn't necessarily coincide with when the wind blows. At the moment, we can balance supply and demand by switching on and off gas and and oil-fired power stations. That is not possible when you have a large penetration of renewables in the grid. And so there's a huge problem of balancing supply and demand with renewable electricity generation. And that means storage. We have to store the energy when it happens to make it, and we have to supply it when people want it. Nuclear works well as a base load. It's not good for following the supply and demand curve of the consumer. So again, you have a much greater problem, even if you have a high, high penetration of, of nuclear in electricity generation of balancing supply and demand. So that's one key area where storage is going to be vital. The other is in transportation, and it's pretty much acknowledged that the way to reduce carbon emissions from transportation is to move to electric traction to electric powertrains, and for that you need onboard storage of electrical energy. So all of this tells us that the the, the use of storage, the need for storage, is going to grow immeasurably over the next couple of decades. It's going to become a vast market, if you want to look at it in 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 a business terms, it's going to be a big industry, a far bigger industry than it is that it is currently. So let's just dig a little deeper into why we need storage on the grid, on the electricity grid. I've said it's to balance the consumer demand with supply, but let's look a little bit more detail at at just where this storage is important. Because there are other aspects. The UK's um, electricity generating (coughs) infrastructure is aging rapidly. And most of it, a lot of it, will have to be replaced in the 2030 to 2040 timescale. So we have to replace it anyway. And it makes more sense, I think, to replace it with renewable or nuclear. We can debate that at the end between the two, but one of those or all of those options, rather than build more coal or oil-fired power stations. I know you can sequester CO2, and of course we should, where we have existing generating infrastructure. But I would still contend that I think it's better to use those scarce, increasingly scarce resources as a feedstock for our chemicals industry rather than just as a source of 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 energy. So I think the way to go is towards renewable and or nuclear. And there's been a commitment, a political commitment, to decarbonise the grid system to achieve the emissions targets. 
So most of the, of the electricity you're going to have to generate in 2030, 2040 is going to have to be um, low carbon. So you put those two things together, and that drives uh, the need for replacing coal, gas, and oil um, generation with nuclear or storage systems. And for all of those, you need storage, storage systems. So how are we going to store this electricity? What are the various options for storing electricity on the grid? Well, there's lots. Uh, there are lots. Um, some that we're already familiar with. Pumped hydro, for example, we've used for decades. So you pump the water up the hill when you have um, low demand from the consumer uh, and you let it flow down again uh, when, when the demand is high. So that's uh, hydroelectric is, is a pumped, is a storage system. Very effective. The Norway in uh, Wales is, is, is the most recent one. Um, the problem with expanding hydro uh, as a storage medium in the UK is it's pretty much reckoned that there are not many other sites that we could realistically build new pumped hydro systems. So that is saturated. You can store electrical energy uh, using compressed air. You can convert the electricity to some kind of chemical energy and store it in this way. You can store it as heat, or you can store it in superconducting magnetic devices. All of these are options, and we're going to need a, a range of storage solutions in the future for the various challenges. Even within the grid system, we're going to need storages of different scale and different types. So it's going to be a fairly pluralistic approach to storage in the future. But there's another class of storage, energy storage devices, electrochemically based energy storage devices, and Bath has had a strong presence in electrochemical science and electrochemistry and electrochemical energy uh, for a number of years. These are the three main um, systems. Uh, you can store electrochemical energy using batteries, using supercapacitors, using fuel cells. I include fuel cells here because um, a fuel cell is not a primary energy source. You don't dig hydrogen out of the ground. It's, it's a storage medium, really. Um, and so I include all of these as part of part of storage. Now, I'm only going to talk about the one on the left um, as an example later, but all of these are part of the, the toolkit of electrochemical energy storage, if you, if you like. So storing energy on the grid, where do we need this storage? Where on the grid should this storage be based? You can divide the grid into three parts. Um, generation of electrical energy, transmission, and distribution. And in fact, you need storage in all of these three aspects of the grid. You want it certainly at the generating level, because when you replace things like this, a few large-scale generators with a far more distributed system where you have large numbers of solar panels or large numbers of wind turbines, it's a very different problem. Okay. You have large numbers of these with variable output, often located at the periphery of the grid, where the grid infrastructure is at its weakest. Okay. You, know, you want to build your wind turbines out in the remote areas, not in the centers of cities where you have a fairly robust grid infrastructure. So you either have to re-design um, the whole of the, of the grid system, or you have to embed storage. Because remember, when you... I mean, a simple picture is if you... If you build a, a grid infrastructure, you can just think of a cable, you have to have that 
able to take the highest power at any given time. So if your peak power is only for a few seconds a day, you have to build the infrastructure to cope with that. That's a very expensive thing to do. If you embed storage, you can buffer those variations so that you supply a more constant power into the grid system, and that is a more attractive way of, of doing this. On the supply side, uh, you would like to have storage in, in, in industrial um, activities and commercial centers and domestically. Uh, for example, you might embed storage in the tr- small transformers that supply a few hundred homes. Why might you do that? Because as more of us perhaps have electric vehicles, we're plugging these in, it's going to produce a big demand on the grid system. Either you're going to have to you know, replace all these substations and these transformers with, with something that was much beefier that will be, cope with this demand, or you run them at constant high output using storage to store that excess energy when it's not required and then feed it into the system when the demand is high. So again, storage can be used in that context too. And as, you, as I said, you require very different sizes of storage, large-scale storage, small-scale storage, different timescales, seconds, minutes, hours, days to make all of this work. I mean, redesigning the grid system for renewable is a, is a big challenge and will be a big challenge for the next few decades. As I said, there'll be lots of types of grid storage. One of them will be lithium batteries, and here's an example of that already in place. This is not just a concept, it's a reality. This is an installation in the north of Chile. It's a 20-megawatt load-leveling system operating in the grid system in the north of Chile. Each of these things that looks like trailers is a 2-megawatt lithium battery installation. There are lots of lithium batteries in each of these trailers. Each is 2-megawatt system, so there's 10 of those making up a 20-megawatt load-leveling system operating as we speak in Chile uh, for load-leveling. That might seem quite large, but actually batteries have been used for load leveling for many decades in various parts of the world. So the concept of using large battery installations is not in itself new. So let's now look at the other one, that's the transportation problem. That was the grid. Let's look at the transportation challenge. So as I said, we're going to have to electrify transportation. Now this is, this is probably the greatest challenge in automotive engineering for uh, for almost a century. Not since the early part of the 20th century when there were innovations in, in, in suspension design and combustion have we seen a transformation in auto engineering that we're seeing now and over the next decade or two. And this is how I think it will, will evolve. Starting in 2011 with a transport infrastructure which is dominated by internal combustion engines and moving ultimately 2030, it might be 2040, these sort of timescales are always difficult to predict, where we have a largely electric vehicle um, dominated uh, transport system. And this evolution reflects both a change in the number of vehicles that are internal combustion engine driven versus electrically powered, but also actually represents a change in the powertrain system continuous change in the powertrain system as we go through the next few, few decades. I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. We already, of course, have some degree of electrification. Uh, you're all familiar with the Toyota Prius and other hybrid uh, vehicles. Uh, they don't use lithium batteries. They use nickel metal hydride batteries. 
And in reality, their impact on reducing carbon emissions is fairly modest. They do help in urban environments, but they don't really make a major impact on carbon emissions. The system that I think is most likely to do that over the next few decades is the plug-in hybrid. In the plug-in hybrid, you have an internal combustion engine and a battery. Now, the concept here is that if you take the, the states, for example, something like 75 to 80% of commuters drive less than 40 miles, 40 miles or less, to work each day. So if you have a battery that will allow you to drive 40 miles, you can drive on, a, on, on, on electric traction, you can charge up the battery at work, you can drive back. So Monday to Friday, you can commute using electricity. Provided that electricity is green, provided it's low carbon, then you've had a big impact on carbon emissions. But if you need to head off from London to Birmingham or whatever, and the, uh, or you want to go off to the countryside in the weekend, you're not limited by that 40, 50-mile driving range. You don't have to recharge the battery. You have an internal combustion engine as well, which will come in when the battery is depleted and allow you to have the several hundred miles driving range that we, would, we take for granted uh, today. So this seems to deal with the range anxiety problem, which is the biggest problem with with battery vehicles, um, whilst allowing us to, sp to spend a lot of passenger miles driving on low-carbon um, uh, low power system. For this, you need, of course, the lightest, smallest battery that you can get, and that's going to be the lithium-ion battery. The Chevy Volt, or the Vauxhall Ampere, as it's going to be called in Europe, um, or in the UK, has a driving range of around 50 to 70 kilometers. It's a plug-in hybrid vehicle. I'm sure we'll see evolution of lithium battery technology which will expand that range, maybe up to 200 or 300 kilometers, perhaps beyond over the, the course of the next uh, uh, 20 or so, or so years. The lithium batteries in something like the Vauxhall Ampera are store about half the energy of the lithium battery in your mobile phone. So they're actually going backwards. Now, they do that because the engineering challenges and scale up because of having to add extra safety features. But we've actually gone backwards in what can be done in a sense. So there's some catch-up and then some going forward. So I think there's good, good expect, a good expectation that we'll actually see improvements in lithium-ion battery technology, which will extend that driving range. But we will not achieve which is, what's the holy grail in transportation, which is a 500-kilometer, 300-mile driving range using current technology. We're going to have to see a revolution, not an evolution, to achieve that. And this goes back to the science. We need new science and new understanding to make those breakthroughs. To get the sort of 500-kilometer driving range, we're going to need new types of system, battery systems such as lithium-air, and I'll talk about this at the end, lithium-sulfur, or fuel cells, or all of, the, all of these. We're not going to do it by an evolution of what we have, have now. The biggest challenge to electrification currently is the battery. And of course, we shouldn't forget that as we move to electric traction, we also have the challenge of developing a recharging infrastructure. We do have to develop a new, a new infrastructure. Now, the concept is that ultimately this will be something that you won't have to go around plugging in. Every time you stop somewhere for a cup of coffee or for lunch or whatever, every time you park your car, 
it will be charged contactlessly, so you won't even notice it. So that will help to expand the range. And as the batteries develop and evolve, the idea here is that you'll get to a point when people will feel that they no longer need the internal combustion engine and no longer using it. The range anxiety will drop away and pure electric vehicles will become uh, a reality that will be something that will be acceptable in the mass market. So why rechargeable batteries? I've already touched on the energy density, the fact that you store more energy per unit mass and volume compared with, with um, alternatives. But that's not the only advantage of rechargeable batteries for energy storage in these two key applications uh, to tackle climate change. Lithium batteries were first introduced in 1991. Uh, they were uh, introduced by Sony, the first commercially successful rechargeable lithium battery. In 2010, this, this had grown to a, a major industry, $12 billion US dollar industry worldwide, some 3 billion cells manufactured each year. It's probably the most successful electrochemical energy technology of the last few decades. It's a major industry. And this is all really on the basis, of mo almost all on the basis of consumer electronics, of portable electronics. As I said before, it's revolutionized consumer electronics. The advantages of lithium batteries, the one I've mentioned already, it has the high, they have the highest energy density. They store more energy per unit mass and volume compared with alternatives. But there are other advantages. They are a means of directly storing electricity. You don't have to convert that electricity into chemicals. You don't have to convert it, convert it into com to mechanical energy, compressed air, for example. When you convert energy that always means some level of inefficiency. Here you're essentially storing electrons directly for the chemists, you know this, and the redox reactions that take place in, the, in these things. They're essentially directly storing, in that sense, electrical energy. Lithium batteries are, are a green technology compared with conventional rechargeable batteries. There are no heavy toxic elements like lead or cadmium in a, in a lithium-ion battery. They're inherently modular, so you can have small-scale storage or large-scale storage. I showed you some examples of relatively large-scale storage. Just to give you a sense of what's possible, a 10-meter by 10-meter by 10-meter lithium battery installation could store 400 megawatt-hours of energy, which is comparable to a sort of wind farm, so a significant amount. So you can have small-scale systems embedded around the, the grid network for power smoothing, for for, uh, at the distribution level, or you could use larger scale systems in, in say, microgrid or off-grid uh, um, uh, installations where, of course, storage is absolutely vital. So here is the rechargeable lithium battery. This is the, a schematic representation of what, what I've been alluding to. This is the sort of rechargeable lithium battery that's in your mobile telephone or in, in my laptop here and all these consumer electronic devices. And like any battery, you have two electrodes, a negative electrode and a positive electrode. In the lead-acid battery in your car, the lead, the lead electrode is the negative electrode. Here it's graphite. The lead dioxide electrode in the lead-acid battery, in this case, is lithium cobalt oxide, this compound here. This is a kind of inorganic chemist's form of graphite, if you like. It's a layered compound. You have these blocks of cobalt oxide represented here by the blue and the red. And then you have sheets of lithium ions, of positively charged lithium atoms, sitting in these layers in between. And when you charge up your mobile telephone, um, this is what's happening. Lithium 
ions, positively charged lithium atoms, are leaving this lithium cobalt oxide, moving across this electrolyte, this liquid electrolyte, which instead of being water-based in a lead-acid battery is an organic solvent. These ions move in between the carbon sheets and graphite. Graphite's made of these sheets of carbon, these graphene sheets. And the lithium ions penetrate between these, these sheets as you charge up the battery. So that's what happens on charging. On discharge, the reverse happens. The lithium ions move back from the, from the graphite, out from between these graphene sheets, back between these cobalt oxide layers, and of course the electrons go around the external circuit and do work. So when you're talking on your mobile telephone, texting, or you're using your laptop not plugged into the, the mains, then this is happening all the time in the battery. These lithium ions are making their way back from the negative electrode to the positive electrode. So shuttling lithium ions back and forth between these two, these two hosts is, is how the system the system operates. And as I said, it's a very successful technology, being very successful consumer electronic products. Actually, just as a minor aside here, um, let me point out that the lithium cobalt oxide was really a UK, or its use as an, as an, an electrode was really a UK uh, discovery. Um, it was first pioneered in Oxford in the 80s, and there's another interesting lesson here this was long before anyone would have, would have actually paid you from industry to work on this sort of material. At that time, industry was interested in sulfides as possible compounds for, for lithium-ion batteries. This is, this precedes commercial, commercially successful lithium-ion batteries, rechargeable ones. Before there was a technology, the focus to try and make that technology happen really was very much on sulfides. This work was done in Oxford, understanding that it was within a general sort of ambit of an area that would have importance if you could make breakthroughs in energy storage. But it wasn't tied to short-term thinking. It was allowing people to think beyond the, the, the sort of constraints of what uh, one or two years and think about how you could really transform this. No one would have paid you directly from industry to look at these oxides. But it turned out several years later that the oxides were the only option to make a commercially successful lithium-ion battery. And this UK discovery in academia is a good example of research making it into the marketplace. I showed you the figures. Every one of the lithium-ion batteries manufactured, virtually every one since 1991, contains this stuff in it. The UK's made a lot of money out of licensing this technology. The UK has manufacturing in lithium batteries, so jobs have been created. It's a good example of, of something that's driven by the science and academia resulting in a, in a, in a commercially successful product. But the message here is that you can't just make larger versions of the battery in my laptop for, your, for electric vehicles or for storing energy on the grid. It's not just a problem of scale-up. You need to transform this technology. You need new generations of lithium-ion batteries that are... That are really fundamentally different. They still operate by the same fundamental mechanisms, but they are very different from just scaling up. It's not just a scale-up problem. And, and to illustrate that, I show you some figures here. Here's just some of the parameters that you have to be concerned about in developing a lithium-ion battery. Cost, safety, cycle life, calendar life, and power. And here are the requirements for different markets. So here's our consumer electronics market, which is a well-established one. The cost of a lithium-ion battery for consumer electronics might be around $1,000 per, 
per kilowatt hour. Kilowatt hour is a measure of energy. Now, because you have small batteries, consumer electronic products are relatively expensive, this really doesn't matter too much. It's a small fraction of the total cost of your iPod. But if you move to transportation, you have to reduce that cost by at least a factor of two, preferably more. If you move to grid applications, you have to bring that cost down by almost a factor of ten. You're not going to do that by scaling something up. Safety is an important issue. Now, these are incredibly safe. I mean, you've all seen these exciting pictures of these lithium batteries catching fire. But actually, um, I said, what is it, 3 billion cells in 2010 alone. Billions and billions of these cells are out there. The number of problems with them is tiny. There are more accidents with lead-acid batteries than lithium-ion batteries, but no one cares because we've had lead-acid batteries for over 100 years. So it's a perception issue, really. But when you move to larger-scale batteries, of course, you're storing more energy. That means safety becomes a more critical issue. Cycle life. Well, you know, generally, we change our mobile phones before we change the batteries. So probably 500 cycles is all you need. Two-year calendar life is fine. If you move out here, you maybe need 10,000 cycles and a 20-year calendar life. Now, these are big challenges technologically. Power also has to go up significantly. So, you know, you're not going to do this by just building larger batteries. So the message is you need a step change. You need new generations of batteries. That means you need new ideas. You need new chemistry. You need new materials. You need to explore new concepts. And what I want to do now for the rest of this talk is to give you a little insight into some of the things that we're doing, and we're just one small player in this uh, global activity to address these challenges of new generations of lithium batteries for storage on the grid and for transportation. So the challenge here, in part, in large part, is to replace these three key elements, the electrode, the negative electrode, the positive electrode, and the electrolyte. All three have to be replaced with new materials. It's a materials challenge. We focus on the electrodes for a moment, These are intercalation electrodes. Remember I told you lithium ions enter and remove the structure. That's intercalation. So we need new materials, not lithium cobalt oxide, not graphite, that have improved properties, transformational properties, that will lead to new generations. The problem is we've been trying to do this by changing the composition and the structure of materials for many years, and it's proving very difficult to to achieve that step change. But there is another dimension, literally, and that's the nano dimension that we can go to that does offer the, pop, pro, the, pop, the promise of that transformation. Because these electrodes, what in reality you have here is you have a, a foil of metal coated by pow- a powder, particles of the material, particles of graphite or particles of lithium cobalt oxide. So something like this. If you took one of these apart, I don't recommend you do that, but if you did, you would find you had a foil with particles. These particles are micron dimension. They're about thousandth of a centimeter, typically, across. If we reduce that to one millionth of a centimeter, we now have a nanomaterial. And that can transform the properties of these sorts of materials quite substantially. And that's something that, that Siphon and, uh, and I and others are, are, are looking at this, this very issue. One of the things you gain is high power. If you... Just consider how long it takes to charge your iPod or mobile phone. Now, if you want a battery for an electric vehicle so that when you step on the brake, 
you recover the energy. You have to do that in seconds. You need a battery that you can recharge orders of magnitude faster than you can at the moment. Lithium-ion batteries are low-power devices currently. They have to become high-power devices if they're going to impact in transportation. And one way to do that is to move to the nanoscale. So let me just show you a little bit more about that. Why we want to go from micron-sized particles one thousandth of a centimeter to nanoparticles one millionth of a centimeter across. So here's my schematic representation of the negative electrode from a lithium-ion battery um, powering your laptop or iPod. And these cubes represent graphite particles. Let's just blow one up a little bit to make it easier to see. So when you charge up the battery, you've got to stuff lithium ions into each of these particles and electrons at the same time. You can't put one in without the other. Both have to go in. The lithium ion batteries, uh, lithium ions have got to enter between these graphite, graphene sheets. They have to move through these particles from the surface to the center. And the longer that path, the longer it takes for that to happen. So the time to, f- to stuff the lithium ions in there, which determines how fast you can charge these things, depends on these, this path length. Now, I don't have time to go into the details, but the time constant, the, 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 sort of time, the measure of time to do this, depends on the square of the diffusion length. In other words, the square of half the, the size of the particles, the distance from the surface to the center divided by twice the diffusion coefficient. The diffusion coefficient is an intrinsic measure of how fast that lithium ion moves. Now, we've already got materials where D is about as fast as it's going to be. You can't beat nature. Lithium ions move about as fast as they're going to. But what you can do by going from a thousandth of a centimeter to a millionth of a centimeter is reduce L. And since this goes as the square of L, the time to stuff these ions in goes down very significantly. In other words... The shorter you make these distances, the faster the lithium ions can can pile in. So we go down to these very small dimensions. We can stuff the lithium ions in with much less time to do so. So let me show you one or two examples of nanomaterials that we've been looking at to try to achieve this. Um, And I'm going to show you a couple of examples. Uh, TiO2b, uh, titanium dioxide nanotubes and nanowires. Now, I'm sure you're all familiar with carbon nanotubes. So these are nanotubes not made of carbon, but made of titanium dioxide. Titanium dioxide is the, the thing that makes white paint white. So there's masses of it around all over the place. I'm sure it's on the wall over here. That's why you've got white, the, the walls look white. But this is a rather special form of titanium dioxide that's made into wires and into tubes. So let's not worry about the details of the synthesis or anything. Let's look at these pictures. This is a picture of a titanium dioxide nanowire. The wire is typically 20 to 40 nanometers in diameter. Here's a tube. The outer diameter of this tube is um, typically 10 nanometers, one millionth of a centimeter. The wall thickness is 2.5 nanometers. So these are very small, short dimensions, so very short distances for the lithium ions to move in and out of this structure, which means you can charge and discharge this electrode if we use it as an electrode in a lithium battery very fast. Never mind, don't worry about the structure. We don't need to go into those details. This allows us to charge and discharge very rapidly. Here's another example of a nanomaterial that we've worked on to try to achieve the same kind of thing, but a very different way. This is a mesoporous material. Now, this is a material lithium-manganese oxide, okay, LIMN204. This material is used in the Nissan Leaf and in the Chevy Volt to replace lithium-cobalt oxide. 
not as a nanomaterial, but as a, as a micron-sized material okay, currently. And the reason it's used is because manganese is much cheaper than cobalt, and it's also safer than cobalt. And what we've done here is make it into a mesoporous material. This is a picture of a particle of lithium manganese oxide. It's a micron-sized particle. This, the particle itself is about a thousandth of a centimetre across. But you see this regular pattern of, of holes or pores in here, which are just a few nanometers in diameter. Now, what this means is the electrolyte, the liquid, can get right inside these particles into these pores. And the walls between the pores are also only a few nanometers thick, only a a millionth of a centimeter thick. So the lithium ions, when they enter the solid structure, have only short distances to diffuse. So this is a very different way of achieving the same thing as I I showed you with the nanotubes, short dimensions in the solid for the movement of lithium ions in and out of this solid to get at these high rates. This happens to be the crystal structure of LIMN204, and these are the channels that the lithium ions move in right inside the walls of this mesoporous material. But let's not worry about, about that. You can put all of this together in a nanobattery. So what we've done here is take graphite and we've replaced it by TiO2 nanotubes. We've replaced our lithium cobalt oxide positive electrode with mesoporous lithium manganese oxide spinel. It's got some nickel replacing some of the manganese. But essentially, it's this mesoporous material that I showed you before. It's like LIMN204, but this with some nickel replacing the manganese. And you can charge and discharge this battery, and this is what we're doing here. And this is the voltage scale, and we're getting 3 volts from this cell, what you get typically from your lithium-ion battery today. So if you discharge this battery, it is an output voltage of 3 volts. We're discharging and charging it, going around this charge-discharge cycle, as you would with your battery plugged in your iPod as you charge and discharge it, giving us 3 volts. And we can do this at high rates. We can do this at rates 10 times greater than we can with a lithium-cobalt oxide system. So it gives us this ability to charge and discharge at high rates in a system that's relatively inexpensive and safe, safer than conventional batteries. So this sort of thing is attractive for the possibility of electric vehicles. Now, I've talked a little bit about lithium, a lot about lithium-ion batteries, actually, in the last sort of 10 minutes. But the reality is that lithium-ion batteries, the best that we're going to achieve is a doubling of the energy density, and that's going to be it. Now, that doesn't sound impressive, when I, but if I tell you that, that energy storage has increased by five-fold in over 100 years, you'll see that doubling is still a big deal. And there's no Moore's law in energy storage. It's not like you know, chips where you can double the... Of the thing or increase it every 18 months. Doubling is a big deal. Okay? And that is an important achie- will be an important achievement and is something that most of us are working on. This is where the f- main focus of effort is going, to try and improve lithium-ion batteries, to extend the range, to make them cheaper, safer, so they can, we can make those plug-in hybrid vehicles extending the range of these. But as I said earlier, to go beyond that, to go to pure electric vehicles and for other applications in the long term, we need a transformation in, the, in energy storage technology. We need to look at new concepts and new ideas that go beyond lithium-ion systems. There are relatively few options. One of them uh, I'll show you is lithium-air. So this is just explaining this point. So this is a scale of energy density. It doesn't have any numbers on it, but it just gives you relative con- um, sort of ideas of energy density or energy storage as we go from 1991 um, through 
uh, the next sort of decade or two. So Sony introduced the lithium-ion cell in 1991. Engineering improvements in that cell doubled the energy density. Okay. That was it. That was as far as engineering could take you in terms of the cell. To go beyond that, we needed new materials. And they introduced the Nexlion technology where they replaced graphite and lithium cobalt oxide with new materials. As I said, most of the focus of effort around the world is trying to find other new materials, nanomaterials, or other ways of pushing this up further. It's a materials challenge as the focus at the moment in lithium-ion technology. But that won't take us to where we need to go. We have to go beyond lithium-ion. That means we're going beyond intercalation processes to something like lithium-air. So here's a schematic of a lithium-air battery. Again, it has two electrodes and an electrolyte like any system. The negative electrode this time is lithium metal instead of graphite. The positive electrode, instead of lithium cobalt oxide and as an intercalation host where you can stuff lithium in and remove it again, is porous carbon. And again, we have the same, basically the same kind of liquid electrolyte in between as we have in our lithium ion cell, generically. What happens when you discharge one of these batteries is oxygen, that's the red, these are the red things here, from the air, enters the pores of this porous carbon electrode, which are flooded with the, the electrolyte. The electrolyte penetrates in here. The oxygen, as the cell discharges, picks up electrons coming around the external circuit to form uh, an O2-2- ion, and then combines with the lithium ions, which come from the electrolyte, to form this Li2O2 compound, this lithium peroxide compound, which is a solid it precipitates and forms in the pores of these car this carbon electrode. You're storing energy not by insertion of ions, but not by the formation of this solid lithium peroxide compound in the pores of the carbon. The remarkable thing is you can charge this up. So electrochemically, you can decompose this stuff back to oxygen. So you pump oxygen back into the atmosphere, and the electrons come back around the external circuit, etc. And so you can recharge this system. Storing energy in Li2O2. The importance of this is that you can store far more energy per unit mass and volume than you can with lithium-ion systems. I'll show you that at the, in a couple of slides at the end. So that's the schematic of how it works. Uh, let me just show you um, a real electrode as it discharges and charges. So what you're seeing over here is the positive electrode. This is carbon. Okay? So we've taken the electrode out, and you're going to see a little sort of movie of the lithium peroxide forming in this electrode as we discharge the, the cell and then being removed again as we charge. So let's just discharge this cell and you'll see the white Li2O2 material appearing as we discharge. So we're discharging along here. This is the, the, the voltage of the cell as we discharge. And it accumulates this white Li2O2 material in the porous electrode. Then we charge the cell up and you'll see this stuff disappearing as we do so. Now, this graph here, I won't go into the details. Basically, it's showing that you can store a lot more energy in this than you can in lithium cobalt oxide. But I'll show you that on the next, next and last slide. The progress in lithium air, and set it in context. So here, we have a plot of energy storage, watt hours per kilogram, energy per kilogram, for four different batteries. First of all, this one here is a conventional lithium-ion battery of today. This is the best that we'll achieve with lithium-ion technology. 
This is what we've achieved with lithium air in cells in the laboratory in St. Andrews. And this is the best that lithium air has to, has to offer. And the important thing is this breaks through the barrier required for the 500-kilometer driving range, 300-mile driving range. So in principle, this sort, of, this sort of system could deliver that transformation in transportation that would remove range anxiety and make the battery electric vehicle something that would be acceptable to all of us, not just in niche markets, say, in, in large urban environments. And this is some work that we're carrying out in collaboration with, with, with CIFL here in Bath and others as part of the Supergen Energy Storage Consortium. Uh, this um, gained a lot of interest when we started working on it. We're not the only people, of course, working on, on this. Um, in 2009, uh, you'll see various sort of headlines here, some considered ones from The Economist, some slightly more perhaps uh, adventurous ones here from The Sun. Um, but nevertheless, it's all important because it shows uh, the taxpayers where their money is going and what, what, uh, um, what we're doing with it and hopefully helps them to understand that why that is, that is important. And it really sort of addresses, I think, encapsulates the thesis of my talk that if we're going to transform energy storage, if we're going to deal with these problems of carbon emissions and changing the way we, we, we supply electricity and we, we, we move around with the mobility of the population radically in the long term. We have to do it through science, developing new knowledge that will allow or act as a platform for new technologies. The lithium-air battery is far from a technology. It's very much in the laboratory. It's in the realms of science. We have to understand what's going on in these cells. We have to understand the reactions so we can control them. It is by no means a technology for today or for five years. It may be 10 or 20 years away. But it's the sort of transformations that need to come from fundamental research that are important if we're going to really address these problems in the long term. I don't believe we're going to go back to the days of horse-drawn carriages and candlelight. I just don't think that's practical. We have to find a way of going forward with the sort of society we've become used to and supplying that electricity without um, killing the planet as we do it. And it's going to require those sorts of transformations to do so. So I hope I've been able to show you or remind you that climate change is an important threat, as is the energy supply problem. I hope I've been able to convince you why energy storage is important, not just lithium batteries, but many other forms too. And I hope I've been able to convince you a little bit about the important role of science as well as technology in addressing some of these major societal challenges that face all of us over the next couple of decades. Thank you very much for your time. to propose a vote of thanks. Professor Davidson is, of course, the Associate Dean in the Faculty of Science and a member of the Chemistry Department. Please, Matt. Thank you, Vice-Chancellor, and, and thank you, Peter. Um, I, I would, on everybody's behalf, like to thank Peter for a talk of, of outstanding clarity of putting the fundamental science that you do in, into a societal context that's important to everybody. And I think it was with sort of um, typical modesty that, that you said you might be able to talk with a little bit of authority about, um, about lithium-ion batteries. Um, 
Professor Bruce is, and it's a word that's, that's overused in, in academia, but, but is a world-leading authority on lithium-ion batteries, as, um, as, as I'm sure has been apparent from his talk. And the last thought I'd, I'd just like to, 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 to leave us with is, is that it's um, another aspect of, of Peter's talk that, that, that really struck home to me was, was the advocacy for doing fundamental science and governments investing in fundamental science. And we really need people like Professor Bruce in the country who are world-leading and can fulfill that advocacy role because it's vital and, and often policy can, can overtake the technology that's available. And we've seen in, in similar areas like, like in biofuels where, where, that, where that has poor consequences for the, for the science that's going on. And, and scientists, of course, get blamed when, when the policy just outruns the, the, the rate at which we can, we can develop things. And, and I think it's, it's with people like Peter who can with clarity describe the technology and the science and the possibilities um, in a policy context and in a societal context that um, the UK will continue to develop world-leading scientists. So Peter, I would like to thank you on behalf of everybody for a tremendous talk. Thank you very much. <laughs>